Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. everyone. This is Eric Rivenis, host of the Most Notorious Podcast. Welcome to another week, and we've got another serial killer to discuss today. This one has been covered on many different podcasts, and I'm happy, as always, to have an expert on to dispel some of the myths and set the record straight. This will be a far different tale than the ones you might have heard before. Today, my guest is Miriam C. Davis. She is the author of a book that I've been waiting to be written since I started this podcast, and I'm Blown away that it somehow escaped me when it was released last year, but better late than never, right? It's called The Axeman of New Orleans, and it has quickly become the definitive work on the subject. In fact, my recent guest, Harold Schechter, had some really nice words about it. He called it an exemplary work of historical true crime, exhaustively researched, crisply written, and as briskly paced as any fictional thriller. Welcome to the show, and congratulations on that amazing blurb. Oh, well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Lots of true crime podcasts have released episodes about the Axeman of New Orleans. It's quite a famous story, but up until your book, there hasn't been anything more than chapters or articles written about it, at least in recent history. Was it intimidating to you to tackle the subject, and how did you decide to write it? Well, um, some years ago, uh, my brother, Tim, came to visit me. And he was reading John Douglas's Mind Hunters, which uh, came out in 1999. So this is probably the early 2000s. And he said he was um, sort of embarrassed about the book. He was afraid that if I saw him reading it, I would think, you know, he was peculiar or weird or something. Um, and I must have seen it and I, because I know that we were on my front porch talking about serial killers. And he just happened to mention that, when he was in, say, seventh grade and in some sort of crime anthology, he um, read about um, this Axeman of New Orleans. And we, we live, grew up along the Gulf, Course, so, Gulf Coast, so New Orleans, um, you know, is sort of um, interest, and we've been there many times. So 
So I was actually working uh, on another project, but I would sit in my office and just purely to procrastinate, I started Googling the X-Men of New Orleans. And I found pretty quickly that most of the versions you get on the Internet and on crime anthologies and now actually on most true crime podcasts are based on the New Orleans writer Robert Talens. Uh, in 1952, he published a book called Ready to Hang, and there's a chapter in it um, on the Axemen War Wings. And so most of what, you know, you run across is is just basically sort of a summary or a rehash of what he had to say. Now, there were some questions about certain aspects of the case. Talent suggested the possibility that in 1911, Talent talked about the crimes that happened from 1918 to 1919, but he suggested the possibility, kind of the rumor among the police at the time, that there had been a similar set of killings in 1911. And he gave the names of the three um, um, Italians that were supposed to have been attacked then. Well, one writer uh, published in, a, in an anthology, he said that, you know, somebody uh, he knew had emailed him and said that in 1911 that nobody by any of the names that Talent had mentioned or anybody at all had been attacked and killed by an axe in New Orleans in 1911. Well, it so happens that the records, the homicide records and the sort of thing, coroner's reports, are kept in the New Orleans Public Library, um, which is just across the street. It, it's right across from on on um, Canal Street, right across from the French Quarter. So my husband and I go to New Orleans pretty regularly. So on one of our trips, one Saturday afternoon, I just sort of popped over to the public library, and I went up to the city division, and I began looking through the homicide records. And I found that there was an attack on an Italian grocer named Joe Davy in 1911. Now, this was not one of the names that Talent had mentioned. And I'm, I don't think the, the, the term axe is ever used in the description of the homicide, uh, because in this case, they actually never found the weapon. But when reading about it, um, it, it becomes clear that this was a very similar attack. So that's what made me think that nobody had ever thoroughly researched the case. It made me think that it was that it was worthwhile for me to do so. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Absolutely it does. And the common denominator amongst all, or most of these attacks anyway, that made you believe that the one from 1911 was connected to the later ones in 1917, 18, and 19 was not the axe, but the fact that the victims were Italian grocers. And it was a description of his injuries. I mean, this was a guy who's... Well, um, now I'm trying to remember specifically what's in it. I've got the homicide report. I could go look. But it was a description of his... Uh, injuries. Now, in fact, I think now that it wasn't an axe, it was some sort of butcher's cleaver, because that was um, the uh, weapon that was being used in the 1910 and 1911 attacks. But when I just read a description, this is a person who broke into this Italian grocer's in the middle of the night, um, attacked the man severely enough, you know, and, and, and um, uh, inflicted enough head trauma that he died, and sort of 
uh, cut up the wife but didn't really injure her severely. And I thought, you know, that's just too suspiciously similar. And that made me go to the newspaper reports and read about it, you know, read about the investigation afterward. And that's really what convinced me that this, you know, um, probably had something to do with the Axeman attacks. Well, kudos to you for going back to 1910, 1911 to check out some of these primary sources. Were there other primary sources you found that hadn't been looked at by previous authors writing about the Axeman? Oh, yes. Um, In that time, in New Orleans, uh, there were sometimes three or four different newspapers. There were usually at least three. And they published a lot more detail uh, about crimes than they would ever do today. So there's actually a fair amount of detail in these newspaper accounts. And there are coroner's reports, which I don't think anybody had ever looked at, as well as the homicide reports. There are also um, arrest records. There are directories. There, there's all kind of um, primary evidence for, uh, for that period that I used sort of to piece together uh, what I think happened. Well, and I think the trouble is, the trouble is that most people who are interested in this, you know, going to New Orleans and having the time to go through all these records, it's just not really feasible. So I think I was just in a fortunate situation. So I'd like to ask you, as I usually do with authors at the start of my interviews, to set the scene for your book. Can you describe New Orleans in the 19-teens for us? What was it like? Well, um, it was unpaved, a lot of it. Uh, you still had a lot of uh, dirt roads on the edges of the town. Um, you, you had cows and, and horses. I mean, it, it wasn't very, it didn't seem very urban. Um, in the French Quarter at the time, it was very crowded, and that's where a lot of the Sicilian immigrants lived. Um, in 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 what was basically a slum. So in the center uh, would have been what is now the very posh tourist district would have been fairly crowded, whereas on the edges of town um, it would have been much more sparsely populated. And in what is now mid city, it's only about this time in the second decade of the 20th century that the swamp is being drained, and they're actually you know building houses um, that connects you know. New Orleans to Lake Pontchartrain, because before that, all of that period, all that area, um, which is now called Mid-City, it was, it, was, it was a swamp. Without knowing much about the geography of New Orleans, I'd, I'd imagined the Axeman murders, before delving into your book, <laughs> as happening in more congested downtown areas. But, but the photographs that you include show individual houses separate from surrounding buildings. Could you describe what these typical groceries looked like and, and where they usually were? Well, some of them were more in the center, like in the Bywater District. I think some people are disappointed to learn that, as far as I know, there were no attacks in the French Quarter. Um, but some of them were sort of more towards the center, like in the Bywater District and in the edges of what it, what is now uh, Mid-City. But a lot of them were on the edges. They were... Um, Small groceries, maybe the size of of a normal living room sometimes. This was a time, of course, when there's no refrigeration. Uh, People have ice boxes. Housewives often shop twice a day, once for the noon meal and then again for the evening meal. And so 
groceries are basically, these small groceries uh, are basically on every corner. And this is a niche that um, Italian immigrants, mostly Sicilian immigrants, are beginning to take over. And you would have these small groceries with just sort of the basics. And in the back or sometimes up top, you have a couple of rooms where the family lives. And sometimes this doesn't consist of anything but one or two bedrooms and a kitchen. It depends on how you know prosperous the family is, but these are very much family businesses where um, you know the entire family basically lives behind the shop and and participates in the business. I mean, the wife and the children all participate in these family businesses. Something else I wanted to ask you about: I normally associate New Orleans with the French, with the Spanish. There's always been an African-American community there, but I never knew that Italians played such a rich role in New Orleans history. Mm -hmm. Can you describe how these Italian, Sicilian immigrants came to New Orleans? Well, yeah, I'm actually embarrassed to admit that when I started researching this, I and I grew up on the Gulf Coast, but I had no clue as to how important Italians had been um, to New Orleans and to Louisiana. But um, in, the, in the later part of the 19th century, cotton and sugarcane planters are looking for a source of cheap labor. And they find that Sicilians um, j- just fit their needs perfectly. There's already lots of trade between New Orleans and Sicily. And so they were importing these, these workers. Uh, some of whom who just came and worked during the season on, say, sugarcane plantations and made their money and went home, but a lot of them who stayed. Um, and so, like, 80% of these immigrants, these Italian immigrants, were actually Sicilian. And they would work on the sugarcane pl- plantations, on, on the cotton plantations, and they would save almost every penny. They were extremely frugal. And as soon as they could, many of them would go into business for themselves. They might start out as peddlers or truck farmers, that is raising um, food and and chickens and so forth to to bring into the the markets in the city, and then trying to work up to, to owning something like a grocery. And this is clearly a niche that the Italians are taking over at this time. In like 1880, something like... 7% 7% of the groceries in New Orleans are owned by Italians, but by you know, 1920, um, something like 50% are owned by, by Italians. So this is clearly a niche that they've developed and made their own. I want to go back to something you talked about a little earlier. These first attacks, there were attacks even before Joseph Davy, weren't there? And they escalated in violence up to Davy's murder, right? Yeah, the first uh, attack was on a, a couple named Harriet and August Crutie in August 1910. Um, Harriet Crutie was awakened one night by about you know one in the morning by somebody who's demanding money, and he, she she's told by this person waving this meat um, cleaver at her, you know, if you don't do if you don't give me the money, I'll do to you what I've done to your husband. She looks over, and her husband's covered with blood. So she gives the guy like the eight dollars she has under her pillow, and he walks out. This is in the in the Bywater district, uh, east of the quarter. The police show up, 
And they find this a very strange crime. It turns out that, that Mr. Crudy's actually not badly hurt. But despite the fact that the, you know, the intruder took the $8, he's, he clearly didn't sort of ransack uh, the grocery in the bedroom the way you would expect. In fact, under the mattress, Mrs. Kruji had a lot more money um, that he could have gotten, and which would have seemed an obvious uh, place to look. So um, it's just the police think it's rather odd uh, crime. He's used a, um, a railroad shoe pin to force a door. And then he actually, this is funny, on the way out, he kind of takes the pet bird in the cage, walks down the street, sets down. I mean, and, and witnesses saw this, sets down on some steps, puts his shoes back on, which he had taken off before he entered the house, and then lets the bird go, and then sort of saunters casually off. So uh, the police chief, uh, the chief of detectives at the time, Jim Reynolds, Jim Reynolds thinks that this is very odd, and they begin to suspect that whoever did this was perhaps some sort of um, morphine morphine addict, because at the time, morphine was fairly easy to get. And they actually catch somebody, um, John Flannery, breaking into a grocery. And he is a morphine addict who has a history of assault. They bring him to Mrs. Crutey. She says, yes, that's the man. And they they throw him in jail. Well, by that time, another couple has been attacked, Joseph and Conchetta Rossetto. This is about a month later in September 1910. They are Italian grocers on the edge of of the city um, in a in a uh, mostly black, poor, sparsely populated area. Again, the attack is with a stolen meat cleaver. And both of them, in this case, are attacked, and both of them are attacked much more viciously than than Mr. Crudy had been. Um, and so this is when the police really start worrying about there's going to be uh, another attack. The, you know, there are newspaper headlines invoking invoking Jack the Ripper. And this was with a, a meat cleaver, right? It's a, it's a, a meat axe or a meat cleaver. I mean, they're they're basically the same thing, but one's a little bit heavier than the other. And they're both in both cases they're stolen. And what he seems to do is he steals it from a butcher shop. He uses it for the attack, and then he abandons it. And one of the things that the police suspect is that this person is an experienced burglar. Um, because he uses, you know, he has a sense to take off his shoes so he doesn't wake people up. And he uses a railroad shoe pin, which is a very common burglary instrument at the time. So they are worried uh, about another attack, which comes in June of, uh, of 1911. Um, Joseph and Mary Davy are a young couple. She's, she's only 16 years old. And... He, again, the attack uh, seems to have occurred between 1 and 3 in the morning. The attacker used a railroad shoe pin to pry open uh, a window. And he really, I mean, he clearly intended to kill Joe Davy because his skull was just smashed in with some kind of implement. Now, the implement was never found, but the coroner said it was consistent 
with something like a meat cleaver. The the poor girl wakes up in the middle of the night and sees the attacker and talks to him. And he says, you know, where where is your money? And she's too terrified. She doesn't even answer. And he hits her with like a porcelain mug, a porcelain cut, cup. And she she's actually cut, but she's not really badly injured. She's just terrified. And she lies there in bed next to her dying husband, actually frozen in terror until the next morning when neighbors come and, and knock on the door. And what I think uh, is going on is that you, you see a real escalation. I, I consulted with a, a retired Georgia Bureau of Investigation profiler and a retired homicide investigator. And, you, you know, both of them uh, seem to agree that it looks like there is this escalation. I one possibility is, and and I think the homicide uh, investigator suggested this is that, and this is a burglar who, for whatever reason, hit August Crudy with his meat cleaver. Maybe he was starting to wake up, and the burglar was worried, but then discovered that that's you know that, that he got a charge out of it. That that's what he liked. He liked sort of the power. He liked seeing the blood. But I, I think in this in these three attacks, you can clearly see this escalation that resulted in in a death. And in the meantime, Flannery's being held in jail, and it's now obvious that as these attacks continue, Flannery isn't the one doing them. Yeah, and and the poor guy, he's um, now a. a an insanity commission by this time, made up of physicians, has found that he wasn't fit to um, to stand trial anyway for the Crudy attack um, because he was so, you know, um, the term was morphine fiend, but he, he wasn't really in his right mind. And they actually recommended that he be sent to the asylum. And this guy just pleaded and pleaded not to be sent to the asylum. And he must not have been. Um, because a year later he's still in the jail, and he he wrote a letter, you know, you know, asking to be exonerated of this attack. That he's just very upset that he's being held on suspicion of this first attack because he's pointing out that there are these other attacks that he that he clearly could not have committed. And and I had trouble tracing him after that. He must have been released eventually. Because um, a couple of years later, he was actually he was actually shot during commission, shot and killed during the commission of a crime. But he was very insistent that that his name be cleared of this uh, accusation of the attack against the Italian grocer. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's four years of fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, 
written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst. It's the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So there's been talk for years about the Italian mafia, the Black Hand's involvement in these murders. Some suspect a motive might have been extortion, protection money, etc. Can you talk about the mafia's influence in the Italian community and what the likelihood is of organized crime playing a role in these murders? Well, if you look at the first three attacks, um, Joe Davey, um, a few months after his death, his brother goes to the police with a black hand letter that Joe Davey had received. Now, black hand letters were basically um, extortion letters. You get this letter saying, if you don't pay me so much, um, something bad is going to happen. And something bad sometimes did happen. I mean, you, you have um, groceries that are blown up uh, by the black hand if you don't pay up. I mean, this is a very serious threat that that is often taken very seriously. But J- Joe Davey just, you know, but, but but people also bluff. I mean, people would also try to get money out of out of um, of businessmen um, who had no intention of actually um, blowing it up or blowing up a business or killing anybody. And Joe Davey just blew it off. He he wasn't concerned about it. So that's what led to some consideration that in his case, possibly there was black hand involvement. Um, now and and in fact he. Uh, I think he, in fact, and his wife were actually from Sicily. The first two, um, the Crutis and the Rossettis, it's very unlikely that they would have been involved in, in the Black Hand in any way. Because they were both, while they were Italians, they tended to be of northern Italian extraction. And their um, their sort of milieu was more American. So they there wasn't a whole lot of... Um, um, the police weren't very confident that that the black hand would have con- uh, um, targeted them because the black hand targeted mostly Sicilians who had a long history um, of very understandably not trusting the police and not trusting the government. So this is a kind of extortion that is um, inflicted on first generation Sicilians who were often too afraid uh, to go to the police. This was mostly Sicilian on Sicilian crime, but did these conflicts, these connections date back to Italy too? Uh, were they carried over to America? No, I don't really think so. Um, 
I think basically, because the mafia in Sicily developed in response to very specific social conditions. And that was, you know, the, the, the government wasn't very interested in protecting the peasants of Sicily. And so what they would do is they would turn to a local patron uh, who would become their protect, protector. And he, um, he would develop, you know, his men who worked for him. And it, it was kind of an organic thing. And they eventually become involved in extortion and crime. But it's kind of a parallel system of government. I mean, I mean, mafia in Sicily is kind of a kind of power rather than what we think of as sort of a big organization. There were, in, in, in other words, the way to think of it is there are lots of little mafias, lots of little families that center on a patron uh, who provides protection, um, who sometimes this protection sort of spills over into what we call extortion. Whereas in the United States, what you have um, are simply criminals. You have groups of gangsters, blackmailers, counterfeiters, who happen to be Italian. But the mafia and in Italy and what comes to be called the mafia in in the United States and especially New Orleans at the beginning of the 20th century. They're, they're very different things, I think. Now, now some people don't agree with me. Some people think that there's more of an organization with ties to other cities. But I tend to think that what is called the mafia in New Orleans at this time um, are just gangs of – various gangs of criminals. Um, there's no really black hand society. There are various – uh, blackmailers who try to engage in this um, black uh, this black hand blackmailing. Um, does that make sense? Sure, absolutely. So again, the black hand is is simply a reference to this specific type of extortion letter, right? Right, and it could be one person who's doing it and hoping that the bluff works, or it can actually be a group of of counterfeiters and criminals and people who deal in stolen goods and all this kind of thing. But it's a, it's not a it's not a yeah it's not an organization so much as it is a a form of a kind of crime. I think back to the, the flashback scenes in Godfather Two, with Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. I, is it something similar to that? Were there these little fiefdoms in New Orleans where there was like a little local boss running rackets, or was it just a, a loose affiliation of criminals? Well. The thing is, you know, we don't have a whole lot of evidence. We know there were lots of um, Italians shooting and stabbing each other. Um, there are groups that people think, you know, might have been groups of gangsters who are fighting each other. Um, I, I still, my tendency is to still think that it's, it's um, loose associations who, when they have a conflict, um, tend to settle them privately. Um, in vendettas, and you certainly have lots of cases of um, uh, of Italians, groups of Italians engaging in these vendettas in in New Orleans in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. Interesting. Sorry, sorry to get so off topic, but it's just fascinating to me. No, no. Well, well, that's something that a lot of people are interested in, and I think a lot of people misunderstand it. I think what, what we think of as the real mafia, I don't think developed in New Orleans until Prohibition. Oh, interesting. So, so it's still a few years off. Yeah, and as I said, 
you know, not not everybody um, agrees with me. I mean, Mike Dash wrote a book where he talked about um, that Giuseppe um, Giuseppe Morelli Morello, who who he calls the first mafia boss in um, in New York, and who had a real sort of organization and may have had ties uh, to New Orleans. But I tend to think that mostly in New Orleans is what you have are just various um, gangs of criminals. Right, right. Who aren't particularly well organized. And Prohibition begins not long after this rash of murders, the murders most associated with the Axemen. And I wanted to ask you about this. There is a pause in the attacks from 1911 to the very end of 1917, right? When they begin again. That's right. Um, The Cleaver, as he's known, just kind of disappears. And and the police chief, Jim Reynolds, he's the police chief by this time. In 1910, he was the chief of detectives. But then by 1911, he's the police chief. He fully expects another attack. And it doesn't come. And he reemerges. I think it's the same person. Reemerges at the end of uh, 1917. He attacks a couple named Andalina, and this is out in Carrollton. And again, they are uh, Sicilian grocers who live behind the grocery store. This time, he he uses actually a hatchet. But this is the first time that I know of that he. The classic way that the Axeman is supposed to enter, and this is what Talent said, is he pries a panel off one of these big, heavy doors to enter. This is the first time that I know of that he actually uses this method of entry. So he chisels off the kitchen door. He goes inside, and he attacks um, Epifanio, the Mr. Andalina. And the wife wakes up and screams, and the Axeman takes off. Hits, he goes through the bedroom, hits the two boys. He's, he's carrying a revolver. He hits the two boys, but he doesn't t- t- touch the girls, and he's out. So, again, you have this case of an attack on the male, um, as well as in this case on the, on the two uh, sons. The wife isn't touched, um, and nothing seems to have been stolen. So, I think it's very much... Um, part of this whole cleaver pattern. And, and I asked the profiler that I talked to, I said, what is the possibility that the cleaver and the Axeman are different people? And he said it was extremely, extremely small that you have somebody who uses the same method of attack on the same people like this. He thought it was virtually certain that the Axeman of 1917, 1918, 1919 and the cleaver of 1910 and 1911 uh, must be the same person. What is your explanation for the six-year lull in activity for the Axeman? Uh, My best guess is that he's probably in jail. Um, The police reckoned that he was a burglar. He uses this con burglary tool. And the most likely explanation is that he got caught committing some other crime uh, and got sent to jail. Now, I don't know that for a fact. He could have been in some other community attacking Italians somewhere else. Uh, but if I had to bet money on it, that's that's what I'd say. And is, is it during this time that Joe Mumphrey emerges as a suspect? He's the man that's most widely suspected to be the killer, and he was a, a black hander, right? Right, right. He actually went to prison um, in 1909 
because he was convicted of um, involvement in trying to extort money from a grocer, and when the grocer wouldn't pay, blowing up the grocery or trying actually to throw a bomb into the grocer's living quarters in the middle of the night, and just fortunately, it ended up um, blowing up just out outside the building. Uh, but he had gone to prison in in 1909, so he couldn't have been involved in the attacks um, in in 1910 and 1911. So he definitely wasn't the Cleaver killer. No, couldn't have been. I've looked at the I've looked at his his uh, re, you know records um, with sort of you know when he went to prison and when he got paroled and all this sort of thing, and and he couldn't have done it. The Maggios were next after the Andalina family. Yes, and I think this is the most gruesome um, of the Axeman attacks, and I suspect that the reason that um, talent started with the Maggios and that the memory of the Andalinas had not been preserved because the Andalina, um, you know, nobody was seriously injured. The Maggios, they're discovered one morning by Joseph Maggio's younger brother. Joe Maggio had been hit in the head twice with an axe, his own axe, which was then uh, abandoned in the in the bathroom. He'd been hit in the head twice with his own axe and his skull fractured and his throat had been cut with a straight razor. His wife, Catherine, she hadn't been hit by an axe at all. The police reckoned from the position of her body, her body was on the floor, whereas Joseph's was in the bed. The police reckoned that she got out of the bed and came around to defend her husband. And the attacker turned around and started slashing her. And she has, you know, defense uh, wounds on her hands. And then managed to cut her throat and cut through the carotid artery, the jugular vein, almost severed her head. And in fact, the reason I think it's so gruesome is because she would have asphyxiated on her own blood as she bled out. That is, she would have been inhaling her own blood as she was bleeding out. And so she was dead well before they were found. Joseph was sort of barely hanging on, but he died even before the ambulance got there. Was was anything stolen? Um, yeah, like $50 in cash was taken, but there was jewelry that was left that was much worth much more than the cash. So, you know, in some Axeman cases, you do have a little, you know, some sums of money taken, um, and this is one of them, but it does not, still does not look like the person was there and made a thorough search to take whatever value uh, was available. And this was the early spring of 1918, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was in May of 1918. May, May of 1918, okay. And it's just a few weeks after the Maggios are murdered that Harriet Stowe and... Louis Bessemer, am I pronouncing that right, are attacked. Bessemer is the way I pronounce it. I don't know if that's correct or not. Okay, Bessemer, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's a guess. Um, yeah, about a month later, um, another grocer, um, and the woman people thought was his wife, but turned out not to be, um, were discovered uh, wounded. Um, Baker, I guess the, the bread delivery guy shows up, and nobody's answering the door, and, and he knocks and he knocks, and finally Louis Bessemer um, comes out, and he's covered with blood, and the 
the bread guy says, you know, where's your wife? Is she okay? And Lewis doesn't, Lewis Bessemer doesn't give him a particularly coherent answer. So he rushes in and he finds the woman badly injured on, on the bed. He wants to call the police. He says, I'm going to call the police. And Bessemer actually tries to talk him out of calling the police. He says, no, 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 I'll just, I'll just call a doctor. But the guy, of course, insists on calling the police. When the police get there, it's not, it doesn't take long. And by this time, the superintendent of police is Frank Mooney. Uh, Jim Reynolds has been, unfortunately, a few months uh, before he was murdered by one of his own men in his own office. But this is why there's no real continuity of like there are very few people who were sort of involved in the investigation during the whole time for various reasons. You know, one thing or another happens to them. But anyway, the police, it doesn't take them very long to figure out something different about these crimes. First of all, the Axeman or the Cleaver, he attacks in the dead of the night. Uh, between one and three in the morning. And I've actually checked, and almost always these are moonless nights. Bessemer and, and Lowe, Harriet Lowe, are attacked because the blood is so fresh. They must have been ta- attacked somewhere around six in the morning. Now, by that time, it's becoming light. And by that time, people are out moving on the street. But nobody saw anybody enter or leave the building. There's no blood in Bessemer's bedroom. Harriet Lowe and Louis Bessemer have different bedrooms. He says he didn't know anything until he woke up in his own bed covered with blood. The police didn't think that was possible because there simply wasn't enough blood in his bedroom um, if, if he'd been attacked you know, in his own bedroom. There would have been more blood. And also, Harriet Lowe's bedroom was, you could see directly into it from the street. So to attack a woman in her own bedroom, you know, and that's what the Axeman or the Cleaver had been doing, attacking people in their own beds. So attack her in her own bed at six in the morning would have been very, very risky because she easily could have been seen from the street. Moreover, when they looked at the blood patterns, it was clear that she had not been attacked in her own bedroom as the other victims were. She had actually been attacked on a back porch or, or a gallery um, with, with an axe that was found, um, and she had somehow managed to stumble, and she left a trail of blood. She stumbled from this back porch um, to collapse on her bed. So there were a number of ways in which this case uh, was different from the uh, the Maggio and the Andalina case and the Cleaver attacks and, and I would argue subsequent Axeman attacks, that, that this is what led the police pretty early on to suspect Louis Bessemer. What do, you th- what do you think about that? Do you think Louis Bessemer was guilty or was it the work of a sloppy copycat killer? Um, I suspect it was Lewis Bessemer. I'm, I'm, I'm dubious about copycat killers. Now, I could be wrong, but I suspect copycat killers have become more common as more and more publicity have been given to these kind of attacks. Now, for the time, these attacks got a lot of publicity. 
But you've got to remember, a lot of people wouldn't have been able to read the newspaper. Um, people were less literate. Um, they just didn't have access so much to, to the media. And my suspicion is that copycats, the, the more access people have to the media, the more they hear about these kinds of crimes, the more likely I think it is for somebody to be inspired to, to imitate them. My own suspicion is that it was some sort of, and, and again, this is a suspicion, I cannot prove it, but I do think it fits the evidence that there was some sort of domestic quarrel. Um, their relationship is still kind of unclear. Uh, he was hit one time over the eye. Maybe she actually hit him in the course of this quarrel. He lost his temper. He was known to have a terrible temper. He picked up the axe she'd hit him with, and he went after her good. Initially, she denied. She, she first tells a story about a, 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 um, a black man, a person of mixed race, who attacked her. But her story makes no sense. I mean, uh, he, she says he comes into the store and... And the store is open and he attacks her. Well, she was in her nightgown. She was not, the store was not open when she was attacked. This makes no sense. And then later says she she doesn't know who attacked her, but she keeps denying that it's Bessemer. Then later, um, after she's gotten out of the hospital, she does go to the police and say that it was Louis Bessemer, even though she can't really remember everything very clearly. And a few months later, when she's dying as a result of these, these injuries, she, she ends up getting um, meningitis, I think it was. But she ends up dying as a result of these injuries. And she, on her deathbed, makes a statement accusing Louis Bessemer uh, of, of being her attacker. And what happens to Louis Bessemer? Well, he's put on trial um, and he's acquitted. And, and while I think this is a wrong verdict, I mean, I think I, my suspicion is he was probably guilty. I think it was probably legally the correct verdict because I think um, there would have been a lot of reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors. Um, first of all, there's still somebody out there attacking grocers. By the time um, it takes a while for him to be tried because of the Spanish flu in New Orleans. So during the time that he's been in jail, there have been other attacks. The police chief had had said, and, and he was called to testify and repeat what he'd said, that he believed there was a single attacker. So if he believes there's a single attacker, the defense can say, aha, and, you know, poor Harriet Lowe and Louis Bessemer are simply victims of this person who's going around attacking grocers. Um, Harriet Lowe clearly, um, during the last months of her life, was suffering from some, when she was accusing Bessemer, she was suffering from some real mental strain. Um, she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. The, the housekeeper that was hired to help her out said that she was um, incessantly praying and having visions of Jesus. I mean, this woman, I, I think a jury could um, conclude this woman was really not in her right mind when she uh, when she accused Bessemer. Um, so I don't I I don't really fault the jury for making the decision they did. While my own suspicion is that the the, the likeliest explanation is that he he in fact uh, he in fact did, did do it. It was just some sort of domestic quarrel that that really blew up. 
Then in August, more victims follow. And first it was Anna Schneider, right? And less than a week later, Joseph Romano met his fate. Um, I think it's, I think it's uh, Mary Schneider is, is attacked in 1918. Oh, Mary. Okay. Um, I actually, again, I don't think this is an X-Men attack. When you, it was, it was included in the list of attacks that talent gave. But when you read the, um, read the newspapers and get the details, it looks very much more like a burglar who was just interrupted. She wasn't hit with an ax. She was hit with a lamp. Um, and, you know, I think what happened is she, she was pregnant. Um, she wasn't sleeping well. She woke up to find this burglar in her bedroom, and he hit her with a lamp and ran. Um, but because of some of the headlines that some of the reporters were using or some of the newspapers were using, you know, I think people, it got connected in the public memory uh, with the Axeman attacks. But I just don't think, I don't think it really, it fits. And could you talk a little bit about Joseph Romano as well? Oh, yes. Um, this was all, um, this was about a week later. Joseph Romano is a, uh, he's a barber, not a grocer. But the, he lives in a house with his nieces, his mother, and his sister. And in the front room, his mother runs a small grocery. And one night, somebody goes to the backyard, picks up one of the family's axes, crawls through Romano's bedroom window, and, uh, and hits him a couple of times with an axe. And, uh, and runs through the nieces bedroom without without stopping or, or touching them so again i think you have the same pattern you have the male in a household with an italian grocery um attacked by uh with with his own axe oh and can i say something about why i think the attacker switched from uh a cleaver to an axe oh yeah please okay well look what he was doing was he was going to the trouble and running the risk of stealing the cleaver and then abandoning it. Because even, even in New Orleans, walking through the streets at three in the morning with a bloody cleaver is going to alert people that something's wrong. <laughs> so, it, so he was having to go to this trouble of stealing um, new cleavers every time. But I think he just figured out an easier way to do it was every household at that time would have had an axe. Because everybody used wood stoves. So he could be certain that any household that he entered would have an axe somewhere. So he didn't have to go to the trouble or run the risk of stealing a weapon to use. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And he's still prying the panels off of doors as well. Did that happen in, in the Lewis Bessemer attack, what, was the panel removed? No, no. And that's one of the things is that where there was no evidence of forced entry, unlike all the other attacks. I would think that chiseling off a door panel would take some time and skill. And, and sometimes, um, you know, like in the Romano case, he just went through an open window. I, I don't think he had a fetish about, about door panels. I just think that when he couldn't find an open window, that he would he would resort to, to chiseling off the door panel. But it wasn't, I don't think it was something that, that he was part of his sort of necessary pattern. And it would make noise because in the Corte Miglia attack, um, 
it's pretty clear that there was a neighbor who woke up at three in the morning and heard uh, the axe man chiseling the door open. He could hear this tap, 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 tap. And when he went out on his front porch and turned on the light to see what he could see, it stopped. And when he went in uh, back into the house and turned off the light, after a while it started up again. So I'm convinced that that was what he was hearing. Could you imagine lying in bed and hearing someone tap away at your door panel? I mean, how terrifying would that be? Well, I, I, well, I think what would be horrifying is later him realizing what it was. Yeah. And having just gone back to bed, he basically shrugged his shoulders and said, you know, it's not my house. I don't know what it is. And he went back to bed. And I can imagine, you know, how he felt later about that. And during this time, the public is going nuts, right? And the police must have been completely perplexed. They're dealing with Louis Bessemer as more attacks are happening. How are the, the police handling things as a whole? And how crazy is the hysteria surrounding these murders? Well, by the time of the Joseph Romano uh, death, um, I think some parts of the city did verge on hysteria, especially, you know, uh, uh, Italian immigrants. And you have stories of men who were staying up all night with shotguns and of families who would band together. So, you know, one of the men could stay up all night. I mean, there was there was at least in certain parts of the um, of the city, there was real, real fear. I think the police, I think Chief Mooney was doing the best job that he could in, in the circumstances. This is a city of 340,000 people. And he had a police force of maybe 250, maybe a few more. But but he didn't have the manpower he needed. He, what he did was he sent out patrols, uh, extra patrols to cover the areas, uh, you know, these these sparsely populated areas that the Axeman seemed to prefer. So I think the best he did the best that he could under the circumstances. Do you do you think this killer had some sort of personal? grudge or vendetta against grocers? I, I think that he did have something against Italian grocers. And of course, I can only I can only speculate as to why that was. One of the things you have to remember is, as I said, 80% of the immigrants into New Orleans and Louisiana were Sicilian. And the Sicilians were darker than than northern Italians. And remember, this is a time when the American South is very literally split between black and white. You were one or the other. And these dark Sicilians are kind of they're kind of liminal. They're kind of on the border. They're not they're not black. They're not, you know, African American, but they're also not quite white. And they're a rising class. As I said, they're in the process of becoming these um, middle-class businessmen who are taking over the grocery business, the corner grocery business in New Orleans. We know from descriptions of uh, the attacker. He's wearing a, a working man's, it's, it's called a, a jumper. It's a working man's uh, shirt. Um, we know he's white. So I speculate that possibly, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a white male who for some reason thinks that Italian grocers have done him wrong in some way. Um, 
the homicide detective suggested possibly, uh, you know, he's a burglar. Maybe he got caught and an Italian grocer testified against him and sent him to jail. I think possibly, you know, he's he thinks of himself as a failure and he resents these, you know, quote unquote, non-white uh, immigrants who are sort of rising and doing better than he than he's doing. So, I mean, I can only speculate uh, about what he's got against Italian grocers, but I feel pretty confident that, that there's a reason he's targeting them specifically. So things really intensify on Sunday, March 9th, 1919, with a particularly gruesome attack. Can you tell the story of the Cordomiglia family? Yes. Um, this is across the river in the little, uh, from New Orleans in the little community of Gretna. Um, there's an Italian grocer and his wife, Rosie and Joseph Cortomiglia, and their daughter. And they're attacked in bed with their own axe in the middle of the night. And both Rosie and and um, Charlie, I'm sorry, did I say Joseph, I, I, Charlie Cortomiglia, they're badly injured and taken to Charity Hospital. But but Mary, their two-year-old daughter, she's she's dead at the scene. The police, you know, the New Orleans police, Chief Mooney, is clearly, clearly believes and is clearly telling the Gretna authorities that this is our, he called him a fiend. They didn't have the term serial killer at the time, but he believed that this was part of these patterns of attacks on Italian grocers. The Gretna authorities, Sheriff Marrero and uh, the chief of police lesson, they decided that the next door neighbors who were also Italian grocers, the Giordanos, who had had a business dispute with the Cortomiglias and actually had gone to court with the Cortomiglias, that, that they must have been responsible for it. But the problem is they didn't have any real evidence because the, um, uh, the Cortomiglias were in no shape to identify anybody. So what happens is after... The Cortomiglias have been have been in, in charity for a week or so. The, the Gretna authorities claim, the police claim, that they have identified the Giordanos um, or Orlando, who's sort of 68, 69, and his 17-year-old son, Frank, as the attackers. Now, what's really interesting about this is that the, the Cordomiglias make this accusation in front of nobody else but the police, allegedly. Uh, the doctors say the Cordomiglias cannot identify their attackers. When newspapermen go and talk to the Cordomiglias, they clearly cannot identify the attackers. It's only the police who say, oh, they've identified the attackers. Now, what one group of reporters showed that when you went to Charlie Cordomiglia and asked him questions, he just answered yes to everything. You know, they were neither one of them uh, had a had a clear memory of what had happened that night. After three weeks, Rosie is well enough to be released from the hospital, and she is immediately arrested by uh, by Sheriff Marrero as a material witness and put in Gretna jail. And the next morning, she signs uh, an affidavit against her neighbors. And as one of her doctors uh, testified at trial, that he thought it was really he found it really interesting that Rosie went in 24 hours from not remembering anything about this attack to remembering it allegedly in great detail. So that's how the accusation against the Giordanos came about. 
And as soon as she signed this affidavit, um, she was released from Gretna Jail. And what happened to the Giordanos? Well, um, a couple months later, they were convicted on, on not much more than her accusation. They were both convicted, and 17-year-old Frank was sentenced to be hanged. And seven months later, seven or nine months later, Rosie, um, who's in the meantime, her marriage has fallen apart, she walks in the office of the Times-Picayune, and she says, St. Joseph came to me in a dream and said I had to tell the truth. They didn't do it. I don't remember who did it. And the only reason Frank had not been hanged was because his case had been appealed to the Louisiana State Supreme Court. And the next month, in fact, the court found that there were at least two grounds for overturning the conviction. The fact that the prosecution would never turn over to the defense the affidavit that Rosie allegedly signed against her neighbors. And secondly, during the course of the trial, the prosecution kept asking the Giordanos, you know, if so-and-so says that they heard you threaten the Giordanos, or when so-and-so testifies that, you know, they heard you threaten the Giordanos, uh, what do you say to that? Uh, but they never brought any witnesses who actually said that, you know, I heard them threaten the Giordanos. And, and the, um, the state Supreme Court said, look, a jury would reasonably think if the prosecution said, you know, we can present witnesses who heard Orlando and Frank Giordano threaten the Cordomiglias. The, the jury would reasonably conclude that they could produce those witnesses if they wanted to. But the, the state Supreme Court said, you know, then they should have produced them, but they didn't. So it was wrong of them to, to you know, keep making that accusation. So that is the only thing uh, that kept Frank from being hanged in the meantime. So the, the case was the case was sent back, you know, to the trial court and it took about six months or so. But eventually um, um, the case against them was dropped and they were released. But the prosecution, the prosecution didn't give up immediately. Um, at one point, Rosie Cordomiglia was threatened with perjury charges. And the police never followed through on those charges? No, no. I mean, she uh, she was afraid. She was really afraid at one point that there was an attempt to get uh, the Giordano's bond. But she wouldn't go uh, and testify um, to help them do that because her lawyer said, I'm not going to let her because she's, you know, she'll be charged with perjury. But in the end, when I guess Rosie made it clear that she was going to testify to the truth, whatever the consequences, then the prosecution dropped the charges. So I don't think an episode on the Axeman would be complete without talking about this infamous letter that is historically attributed to the killer. Mm -hmm. Can you describe just in general what was inside this letter? Right. If this is, um, if people are familiar with the Axeman at all, this is usually what they're familiar with. Um, this is the story of the axe-loving uh, serial killer who uh, that made it onto, you know, American Horror Story in season three. Um, a week after the um, the attack on the Cordomiglias, on a Sunday, the Times Picayune printed a letter that purported to be 
from the Axeman, in which he he said um, he he claimed that he was a uh, he was a spirit and a fell demon from hottest hell, and he said that the next Tuesday night, this was this was published on a Sunday, that the next Tuesday night he would be moving through New Orleans, but he loved jazz, so that any household from which there was jazz playing, it would be safe. And he, the killer almost certainly did not write this letter. Um, it is it's very sophisticated. It's very well written. Um, there's every reason to believe that the actual killer was not um, educated enough to have written this letter. It, to me, it makes some allusions. It sort of has some things in common with the Jack the Ripper letters, like the Dear Boss letter, because um, it's supposed it's it's you know dated from hell, and it it mocks the police uh, for not being able to catch him. But it's done in a really lighthearted sort of way. I mean, to me, it really leads reads like a frat boy prank. So I, I think I think the chances of it having been uh, written by the actual killer are very very low. In fact, the um, the, the profile on the homicide detective said, no, nah, no, nah, he didn't write it. So the question is, who did write it? And I say that I don't know who wrote it. However, the person who benefited from it seems to have been a, a jazz composer called Joseph John Davila. He owned a, um, a music publishing company in New Orleans. And soon after, he came out with a jazz song uh, called the mysterious X-Men's Jazz or Don't Scare Me Papa. And he made a packet off that song. So I'm not accusing him of doing it, you know, but you, you can, anyway, you can't libel the dead. But I I think that he is the one who benefited um, from that letter and from this idea of the jazz-loving serial killer. So, you know, he's my he's my primary suspect who actually wrote the letter. What was the response by the public to this demand that anyone who didn't want to die play jazz music? Yeah, I mean, um, clearly there were people, um, sort of the educated elite who paid no attention to this, um, who thought this was, you know, my suspicion is the Times-Picayune when they published it uh, didn't take it seriously. But among, you know, uneducated what, you know, one editor calls superstitious um, people, it, it really scared some people. It really frightens people. I mean, I think some people probably used it as an excuse to play jazz all night and, and have a good time. Um, but I, I suspect that, that some people, particularly among Italian communities, um, I think it scared the bejesus out of them. And I think it was a very cruel joke. Yeah. So, so it was interesting as the, the stories of the murders are equally as fascinating to me is, is how the tales of the Axemen murders have morphed into mythology. Mm-hmm. You mentioned American horror story already, but it, it pops up in culture movies and television quite often. The Axeman is a serial killer that most of us know a little bit about, but mm-hmm. information has always been kind of sparse and often untrue. Yeah, I mean, like even these recent um, true crime podcasts, 
all of them, but all of them that I've heard are basically recapitulations of what Talent had to say. Um, and I think what he had to say was basically based on oral tradition. I mean, he would have been like 10, 10 or so in New Orleans when, when this happened. Uh, he was a newspaper man, so he would have known um, police and newspaper men who, who lived through that episode. And I think what he was writing, he wrote a lot of it, I think, from memory. Um, and I think the way the sort of public memory um, developed, I mean, at, at the end of the book, I talked about how when Joseph Mumphrey is gunned down by, by Esther Pepitone in, in, um, in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles police had been in touch with the New Orleans police about Mumphrey's criminal records. And after Mumphrey is is killed, there is a headline in the New Orleans states, Axe Murder Solved, Mumphrey is Killed. And again, Mumphrey was the black hander we mentioned earlier in the podcast, the man often accepted as, as the axe man. Right. And and he's the, the person who, who talent suggested um, as the only possible axe man suspect. And he was actually murdered in Los Angeles as a result of some of his uh, black hand activities. He, he, um, Esther Pepitone was the wife uh, of Mike Pepitone, who was, uh, his talent said was the last of the Axeman's victims, but I don't even think he was an Axeman victim. I think he was part of this whole sort of, you know, Italian gangster mafia, whatever you want to call it. It, it was one of those sorts of infights. Esther Pepitone moves to Los Angeles and she remarries. She remarries a man who had been in business with Joseph Mumphrey. And when when Joseph Mumphrey and he had moved out to Los Angeles, well, um, the husband, Angelo Albano, disappears one day. And Joseph Mumphrey shows up a little while later, a few days later, saying, give me money. Or I'll do to you what I did to your husband. And the implication was, was very, very clear that he'd murder her husband. So she goes into her bedroom and she gets a revolver and she empties, empties it into Joseph Mumphrey. And then she goes, gets another revolver and she empties it into Joseph Mumphrey. And then when she's put on trial, she pleads self-defense and she's acquitted. But the story that gets back to New Orleans is this story that's published in the New Orleans states that the axe murders must be solved because Mumphrey's been killed. And they argue, you know, I mean, you can see here the seeds of what talent um, had to say a few, a few uh, decades later. And it's just that, you know, writers, when they're writing from memory, they misremember things. And um, and I don't think newspaper people, well, newspaper men at the time were not always as careful as they ought to be. And so that, I think, is the seed of what um, what became Talent's version, which is kind of the the standard version you still find out there. I neglected to follow up. After the Cordomiglia family, there were a few more attacks, including one against Mike Pepitone. Well, um Pepitone is the, the last uh, alleged Axeman attack. As I said, I don't really, I think the Cordomiglia attack was really the last legitimate Axeman attack. 
in New Orleans. I think Pepitone is kind of a, a black hand Italian gangster uh, infighting. But after his death, talent says there are no more um, uh, there are no more Axeman attacks. But I actually have traced what I think are three other Axeman attacks in Louisiana. In December of 1920, in Alexandria, Louisiana, Joseph and Rosie Spera, who are Italian grocers, are attacked. Joseph and their small daughter are killed. Uh, on January 14, 1921, in DeRitter, Louisiana, which is in, in West Louisiana, Orlando uh, Giovanni is attacked with an axe and killed. Um, and then in April, of 1921 in Lake Charles, Louisiana, a couple named Scalisi, and all of these are Italian grocers, uh, Frank and Marlena Scalisi, are also attacked. Um, you know, same MO, axe, nothing stolen, um, and, and a man is killed. So I actually think that once the axeman left New Orleans, that you can sort of trace him as far as, as western Louisiana in, um, in, into 1921. Incredible. And it seems more than a coincidence, right? Italian grocers being attacked with axes. Yeah. And, and I really sort of, I found it by accident when I was going through New Orleans uh, newspapers. I sort of just saw this headline and, and uh, followed it up and then turned out there were a couple more attacks. And I'm convinced that the farther west you go somewhere, there are there are more stories about this, but I just as far as I can tell, it just peters out at this point. What I like about your book is that you don't feel the need to hoist a specific suspect up at the end. There are, are a lot of authors when writing about cases like this, unsolved cases, they, they feel compelled, even though there might be little to no evidence, to put the blame on someone and claim that they've solved it once and for all but you admit at the end that it's still unsolved. Let me ask this. Did, did you set out in writing this book with a belief that you would discover who the real killer was? Uh, well, I would have loved to uh, have had a suspect, but I thought that the chances were not great. I mean, if Joseph Mumphrey didn't do it, um, I, I never thought there was, you know, a terribly big chance that I would be able to solve it. Now, I mean, there's always a possibility, and I would have loved to have come up with it with a viable suspect, but, you know, it just didn't turn out that way. Of all the suspects that you've examined, do you lean towards someone as the killer, or is it all just too ambiguous in your own mind? The, the one suspect who was named, who apparently was Frank Mooney's um, sort of chief suspect was it was a sort of a, a black man named Charles Anderson who was a habitual criminal and I just don't think it was him at all because the witnesses that we have said that the axe man was white um it, you know the the witnesses are are all from the cleaver but since I think they were the same killer I you know I can I feel pretty confident that the axe man was white um and so Charles Anderson I did follow up on him I tried to see if there was any evidence but you know that would support that but I I I just don't think so. And this is why I end the book with a profile of the kind of person I think it was likely to have been. Um, because I think we can speculate in that direction, but I just couldn't come up with any, with any particular name. Fair enough. 
I assumed you you watched the American horror season with the Axeman as a character. What, what did you think about that? Well, um, the American horror story, I have to confess, uh, it's a little creepy for me. Um, so I watched as much of season three as I could. But, you know, I mean, it's the... It's the Axeman of myth and legend, you know, a, a trumpet-playing serial killer. But, um, you know, it's interesting to see what, what how people take these these myths and how they spin them. Um, and, you know, I've read I've read several novels uh, based on the Axeman story. And, you know, and there's one that's just came out. I can't remember the name of it, but somebody sent me a newspaper clipping about it. You know, when people take what they what they think they know and they they put their own spin on it. And that's fine. That's what that's what fiction is for. So for people interested in learning more about you and your book, where should we direct them? Um, com. In local bookstores, online booksellers, go out and buy a copy, right? Am, am, yes, Amazon is the quickest uh, I, I found. But yeah, go out and buy a copy. Email me if you like it. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time today. And we went over our allotted hour. I thank you for that extra time. This has been really informative. Well, I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Again, I've been speaking to Miriam C. Davis, author of The Axeman of New Orleans. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.